You're listening to a podcast of This Positive Life, thebody.com's growing collection of first-person stories from people living with HIV. This is Olivia Ford reporting for The Body. I'm here today with Gary, who's been living with HIV since 1992. Gary, welcome to This Positive Life. Thank you. You're welcome. Can you start by describing how you found out that you were HIV positive? Actually, my partner was diagnosed at the time, and I was living in Detroit. I decided, well, I better get checked out, too, and came back positive. This was 1992. Tom, my partner, very rapidly, following his diagnosis, he was diagnosed with cancer. and It was a very aggressive cancer, and within six months, he had passed away. And so that was a very tough time for me, especially dealing with finding out I had HIV, and then six months later, my partner passed away, and those six months were horrific for him. It was a very bleak time, especially uh, there was not many medications out at the time. I don't know when I was actually infected, but I remember back in, like, 1988, I had the worst flu. We found out that that's kind of a symptom of conversion. So it could have been, like, 1988 or so that uh, I was actually infected with HIV. At the time, my reaction to finding out I had, I really didn't want to hear anything about it. It was tough enough taking care of Tom and, and all that. Anything would come on TV, I would just turn the station. Really didn't want to hear anything about HIV. Eventually grew more used to it. Actually, Larry Kramer, I happened to see a um, special on individuals living with HIV. It was probably 1993 or 94. I'm not quite sure when. But he made a statement that really helped me deal with my disease and living with it. And he said, it's, living with HIV is like living with a monster in your house. Sometimes it's quiet and, and asleep in the corner, and other times it's going crazy and thrashing and destroying everything in the house. For some reason, that really struck a chord with me and helped me learn how to deal with living with HIV. From that point, I kind of delved into it and, and really wanted to become more aware of what was available, and AZT was the only thing that was available at the time, and I did not respond well to AZT. My T-cells were like 700 when I was diagnosed, and with six months, they had fallen to 500. Especially with what happened to Tom, it was like, well, okay, this is it. It's not going to last very long. I'm not going to last very long, and that was the whole story of how everybody was living and dying with HIV. Then Videx came out, so I switched to Videx, and I responded better to that, and was on that for several years, and I got involved in a clinical trial. I had been transferred to Cleveland, Ohio, and was involved in a clinical trial at University Hospital for a Virocept, which was the second protease inhibitor that came out after following Crixivan. I responded very well, and that basically saved my life because at the time my T-cells were down to 200. I was feeling okay, but I was on the verge. With the Virocept, even though there were some side effects, I um, was able to rebound and my T-cells came up. Being involved in the clinical trial, I really did try to educate myself more and more about living with HIV. And that's kind of how I became aware of POS magazine and before POS started, but they had an info pack, a newsletter that was an email started by Stephen Gendon and Sean Struve. At that point, I got involved with uh, receiving the email from them. That helped to learn more about treatments and people living with HIV. How old were you when you and your partner were diagnosed? Um, let's see, it was 92, so I would have been 43, and Tom was the same age. How did you and Tom find care in that initial 
time, and was it difficult with the cancer and the HIV? There were doctors who already were specializing in HIV and AIDS. In Cleveland, also, it was the same. When I went there, I went to the university hospital, which actually had an AIDS clinical trial unit there, and John Kerry was my doctor. He was very active in HIV and and studies and, and that type of things. I was fortunate to get that type of care that early. I'm curious what the community that you were living in was like in Detroit. Was there sort of a big gay community there? Yeah, in Detroit it was a city of a million people, and there's like three million in the metro area, so there was quite a a gay community. There wasn't a whole lot of HIV organizations, and and like I say, when I was in Detroit, I wasn't really wanting to hear much about it, so I didn't get involved at all in any of the HIV activities. Uh, Now, when I went to Cleveland, it was a little different when I was making my evolution into more acceptance and, and I heard Larry Kramer and got involved in the clinical trial unit and so I actually volunteered for quite a few clinical trials. They did a lung study where they injected your lung with a saline solution and then withdrew that liquid out in your lungs or where very young cells are made and so they were able to study the progression of HIV as how it affects very young cells in the lungs which was kind of a very unusual study. (laughs) So then there were some other studies that I got involved with, and then I just really started trying to educate myself more and more about HIV and the treatments. What regimen are you on now, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah, Resista, Truvada, and Norvir. And how's that been for you? It's okay. I mean, there's some stomach problems, but that's something you live with. (laughs) Besides the low T cells with the AZT, you hadn't at that point had any... No, actually, I've never really, I mean, I had neuropathy, and I've had shingles, and had pneumonia, but it wasn't a real serious type of pneumonia. I had thrush, the standard type of stuff like that, but nothing life-threatening that I've had to deal with. So now going a little bit back to before you and Tom's diagnosis, prior to 1992, what was your knowledge of HIV at the time that you were diagnosed? Tom went and got tested, but what was the impetus for his getting tested? You knew it was out there, but if you weren't infected, it really wasn't something that you tried to learn about. We had friends who were dying all the time. I had several good friends that passed away in, in the late 80s and early 90s. It was when safe sex started coming around, and you knew that you needed to be protective. And, but Tom and I were in an exclusive uh, arrangement, and so it really wasn't something that we were that concerned about. The community had begun to organize, but there really wasn't a whole lot out there. There was ACT UP, which was the radical arm of the HIV movement and really did help bring about a lot of awareness and a lot of faster track approval of medications. Thank God that they were around. But there wasn't a whole lot of support. I mean, Tom had sort of started a a two-for-one support group several years back in the late 80s. He had two people for every person that was diagnosed with HIV as a support person for them in Detroit. It was informal, just friends who had gotten together who had agreed to help other people who were living with the disease, getting them food or helping with their home or doing whatever they needed if they needed to go somewhere and they couldn't drive, that type of thing. Because people were, as they were getting diagnosed with the disease, they would begin not to be able to take care of themselves. So in a sense... Prior to being diagnosed, Tom had already gotten involved in some way in HIV work. Was he surprised himself when he was diagnosed? Well, the way it started was he had this really bad pain in his back. 
that was actually a cancer tumor uh, that was causing the pain. He went to get that checked out. That was the initial reason he went to go to the doctor was because of the pain in his back. As part of their procedure, they tested him for HIV, and that's when they found out that he had HIV and he had this very aggressive cancer. What kind of cancer was it? I don't remember. When they found it, it was the size of a golf ball, and when he passed away, it was the size of a grapefruit, and that was within six months. Did any doctor express an idea that the cancer might have been related to the HIV, or were they really independent of one another? They didn't know. They really didn't know at the time. There was never any official word that it was directly connected. problem was with the treatment of the cancer is the chemotherapy, which ruins the immune system. They were trying to treat the cancer. They were ruining his immune system, which was being ravaged anyway by HIV. He just deteriorated. I mean, he was very healthy, worked out four or five times a week. Uh, within six months, he looked like an 80-year-old. How long had you been together, the two of you? Uh, we'd been together about seven years. We'd known each other about 15, but had been together about seven. I imagine that Tom was the first person that you told about your diagnosis. Besides him, who was the first person that you told? Um, two people that I knew at the time, the friends of mine who were positive. They were people that I contacted, and another very good friend of mine also. I talked to him about because I needed to. <laughs> do you remember feeling supported by the people around you as you were Yeah, yes. I do. I vividly remember that day uh, with the diagnosis and and when the doctor came in and said you were positive, when you find out something's positive, that's a good thing, <laughs> you know. But then it was just a brief second, and then I realized, no, that's not a good thing. It was very strange because I remember driving on my way home from the doctors and looking at the person in the car next to me thinking, why do I have HIV and why do I have to have this? Actually, I was going on vacation the next day. The whole vacation was a strange one. Do you remember where you went on vacation? Yeah, we went to a, a resort, Tom and I went uh, in uh, western Michigan called Saugatuck. It's a popular resort of, on Lake Michigan. Can you remember what the doctor said to you that day? If, did he just say, you're HIV positive, and then walk out? What was the line back then? I don't remember. My mind was just reeling at the time because I kind of expected it, but I didn't want to have it. I remember that he left me alone for a little bit because he said, you just need to sit here for a little while and collect your thoughts and take all the time that you want. But I don't remember what he said after he told me that I was positive. I, I know that my mind was processing it and dealing with it and reeling from it. After you told the initial people that you were positive, how soon did you start to tell more people? It was a while. I didn't want people to treat me differently because I had HIV. When you have it, everybody, oh, how are you today? You know, How are you feeling? And especially back then, it was pretty much a death sentence. I figured that by the time I was 45, in three years or so, I wouldn't be around anymore. I wanted to be able to still live my life as, with as much normalcy as I could. And like I said, initially, I really just ignored anything dealing with HIV other than taking my meds and talking to the doctor and talking to the few friends of, that were HIV positive that knew I was. And uh, another friend who's not HIV positive. Of course, there was Tom's family, and they were very supportive. Uh, they were incredible through the whole process. Eventually, you know, as I, as I made the progression from denial and ignoring it to more of an acceptance, you're kind of going through a grieving process, you know, as you have all those various stages of it, and it took a couple of years, but the more I started learning about it and deciding that I better start taking more interest in what treatments are and what I might need to do and what alternative treatments that might be available and 
And then in 1995, I started working for Community Prescription Service, which was a sister company of Paz Magazine. I was working at their pharmacy. It was the first HIV specialty pharmacy. The nationwide, they were doing mail order for people who had HIV and didn't really want to go to their local pharmacy to get their medications because of the stigma. The main offices were located in New York, but then the pharmacy itself was located in Cleveland, and that's where I was living at the time, and kind of became the coordinator between the pharmacy and the New York office. Once I got involved with them, I really started learning a lot about HIV and because I was dealing with the meds every day in, in the pharmacy. and Actually, within the pharmacy itself, I got to the point where I put on a class called HIV 101 for the employees. There was about 100 employees at the pharmacy itself, and I had groups of five that were all volunteers. I told them about my experience in living with HIV, and it was about an hour-long discussion uh, with people asking questions and telling them the basics of it, because this was, again, in Ohio, and these were all middle America, suburban-type people who were working at the pharmacy. But it was surprising because several came up and said, you know, my cousin or my brother or my ex-husband actually had HIV. And it was very surprising because none of that information had ever come out before, but they did tell me about it. One of the women came up and said, my daughter's very sexually active and she just got an STD. Should she be tested for HIV? And I said, well, she's having unprotected sex. Yes. She needs to be tested. At the end of the uh, class, I asked for volunteers because I had set up a regimen of HIV meds that were actually placebos. They were just glycerin pills, which we had set up various combinations. At the time, it was you had to take some medication every four hours. Some of it you had to take with food. Some you had to take without food. Sometimes it got very complicated to be compliant with the medications and the restrictions as far as diet and timing recreated several combinations of the medications and put them together in pill bottles. Again, it was just the glycerin capsule, but then I asked for people in the class who would want to go on this regimen for a week. I asked them to keep a journal and their reactions and then uh, to come back, and, and we held a general meeting where they would give their feedback to the entire staff of the pharmacy. And it was very interesting. The one woman, uh, they were on their way to a wedding. She forgot to bring her meds with her, so they had to turn around and go back. She was also in a meeting with a client. She was in sales, and it was time for her to take her medications. And she said, gosh, what do I do? And so she pulled out her pills and took her medication at the time. Hearing their reaction, it was very eye-opening for them also as to how to deal with just the stigma of having to take pills. It didn't say this is an HIV pill or anything like that, but it was actually just the idea of them having to take something. It worked out very well. It's very good education for the staff. Was this a pilot program? It seems very uh, progressive to involve the staff in this way. I just created it myself. It wasn't the only thing that the pharmacy dealt with. I mean, it was a mail-order pharmacy. They had thousands and thousands of, of clients with various diseases. But our segment from Community Prescription Service was a big portion of their business. They dealt with it every day. They dealt with medications, and they dealt with patients and calling in refills. And, and I just felt that it was important for them to get that other personal side of it instead of just a phone call or a pill that they were dispensing to someone. Were people resistant at first? I was absolutely amazed. It was very, very well received. Like I say, it was all volunteer. that They didn't have to attend these classes, but I would say 90% of the staff volunteered to come into the class. 
Can you remember some of the comments that people made after um, this experience? Uh, some of them didn't know that I was HIV positive, which I was surprised at because I wasn't very, I was open about it. Some of them, you know, they were very appreciative of the fact that I was being that open. And I remember one question from one woman was, do your parents know? I, at that point, my parents were elderly. They were like 80 at the time, and they had their own health problems. And I felt that hopefully I would hang on, I would still be around, that they would pass away before I did, and that they wouldn't have to deal with it because they were having enough of their own problems of dealing with the diseases. And she thought that was very sad that I wasn't able to speak to them about it that I was shouldering her on my own, but I felt that I would bring no benefit to my parents' life if I told them about my situation. So you never did end up telling them? No, they passed away. After Tom had passed away, where did you get the kind of support that one might get from a family? Was it hard not having... Yeah, there wasn't really much support at that time. I was still working, too. I mean, I was having to deal with going into work every day, and I worked for a major electronic firm in Detroit, and Honeywell, General Motors was my account, so I mean, I had major sales going on and having to be up and dealing with that type of of situation, and unfortunately, it got to the point where I was not willing to play the corporate games anymore because it didn't matter. I wasn't going to be around. Why bother playing all the, the little games that you have to play in the big corporate world? It affected my performance. When you say you weren't going to play the corporate games anymore... What do you mean? Were there any repercussions in your Um, life? I don't know if there were any repercussions because I I was still successful in what I was doing. I was having my sales. And as long as your numbers are good in sales, they're happy with you. you But we would go to conferences or meetings or things like that. I just wasn't as involved as I should have been or could have been and as other people were. I'd like to go back to talking about your family a little bit. Um, where did you grow up? What was your background like? I grew up in, in a small town in, in rural Ohio, in northwest Ohio, just about 30 miles south of Toledo, which was in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it was Norman Rockwell type of thing. You knew everybody in town, and half of them were related, and you never locked your doors, and you had the milkman that came and delivered the milk to the door, and it was a small community. There was two high schools, one Catholic and one public. And the public high school had like 1,200 people in the three grades, 10, 11, and 12. It was a fairly large high school, but it was very rural. <laughs> did you have siblings? I had an older sister. When did you tell her? Or if you have told her? Yeah. Well, yeah, I told her, uh, it was probably in the late 90s. What was her reaction? She was quite upset. We don't talk about sexual orientation because she doesn't approve. But she's a nurse. She's also, uh, I like to say, very conservative. I was visiting her at her home in, in North Carolina and decided that it was time to tell her and expected that since she was a nurse that she would be more supportive than she was. But it was like, well, I'm not surprised because of your lifestyle. It was just not a very supportive environment. Did your relationship with her change at all after you told her? We were never really close. <laughs> And we're probably less close now than we've ever been. It's unfortunate. We talk about it occasionally now, but nothing ever major. Did she know you were gay at the time? And did your parents know also ever? Yeah, they knew. But again, it was conservative, rural Ohio, and so and they were Germans. If it's uncomfortable, you don't talk about it. <laughs> did you just tell them and then you never discussed it again? Or did they guess? At some point, it was back in the 80s, I decided that you know, it was time and I was an adult, and they needed to know. 
as if that was just part of me. We were close, but again, it was the type of thing that once I told them, I don't know if we ever discussed it after. <laughs> Did you tell your sister at the same time? Yeah. Does your sister live near you now? No, she lives in North Carolina, has for years. And she's still a nurse, too? She's retired now, actually. Does she have a big family? Three children. Do you think there are still a lot of people out there who can't or don't talk about their HIV status or reveal it to their families? Yeah, I do. It's like coming out a second time because it's, if you're gay and have HIV, I mean, there's two things that you have to come out with. It's, I think it's just as difficult for some people to discuss it with family and friends. Friends are probably easier because of the gay community and the HIV community and the awareness of that. The general population knows HIV, but they don't know anybody that has it. Or they may know someone, but it's, it's a distant type of thing. And then there's others who do have family members or uh, friends of friends. That, that's why they're aware of it, because it has affected them personally on some level. People who haven't had that type of connection, I don't think generally are involved or aware of much about HIV. Switching gears a little bit, how long after Tom passed away did you, when did you start dating again? What was the process of getting yeah, to that? Uh, it's still something I'm dealing with, <laughs> actually. I mean, I've had several relationships since then, but nothing, nothing very long or very serious. It's hard to compete against a ghost. Tom was my soulmate. It was a, a wonderful situation. I haven't really been in a very long-term relationship since then. I know I need to move on, <laughs> but I just never have been able to that much. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2001. Part of the treatment that I went through was the radiation of the seeds, which pretty much destroyed the prostate gland, which is where the testosterone is produced and that type of thing. And without that, there isn't much of a sex drive. Since then, it's been kind of, okay, well, maybe I can really get myself up for this if I try. <laughs> but I can't take any testosterone supplements because uh, it doesn't feed prostate cancer, but it helps it grow. I haven't had a date in probably four or five years at this point. You never know if the equipment's going to work or not. <laughs> it's part of the problem. You know? Has that been stressful for you at all? Yeah, it's something that's very hard to deal with, actually. I'm 60, so maybe the sex drive has lessened because of the age. I've kind of an optimist and at some point well maybe i'll meet somebody that just really blows me away it's kind of the, the feeling i have but it hasn't happened <laughs> optimism is the wonderful thing i think it's important having that i mean i've dealt with depression at one point i never thought i'd live to see 2000 well i blew past that then i thought well i'll never live to see 50 well i blew past that <laughs> now i'm 60 and it's 2009 my t-cells are like at 400 and viral loads undetectable you know actually i should be around for another 10 years <laughs> There's a lot to be optimistic about, yeah. it sounds like. How did you cope with depression? Well, I've had counseling and uh, also medication. The combination kind of works. Since we are talking about health, how did you find the different HIV specialists that you've worked with over the years? In, in Detroit, it was just my regular doctor who was gay, who was specialized in, in HIV and, and just had gay clients. That's who I went to. When, and then when I moved to Cleveland, I asked several of the AIDS organizations around there, you know, who they would recommend, and, and they recommended that I would go to the University Hospital, which is part of Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, and that was a very top-notch hospital, so that was, I was very fortunate to have gotten into that type of a 
medical situation there. I moved to New York in 2000. It was through the AAHIVM and also through work, which I was working for Community Prescription Service, who was based in New York. And then when I came here, it was just through references that I, I knew of the doctor that I wanted to use here in Fort Lauderdale. What have your relationships been like with your doctors? Do you feel as if they listen to you? My doctor in New York knew enough to listen to his patients and to hear what they had to say. And he knew my background also, so he knew I was involved with medications. And, the, and at that point, I was working with a community prescription that was actually running the company after Stephen passed away. We worked together, and that's how I approach it now. I really want to work with my doctor and not just do blindly whatever he says. In 2000, you moved to New York. Then in 2001, you were diagnosed with prostate cancer. Right. Did you go to different specialists? Yeah, it was, it was kind of weird the way I found out because I would have symptoms of like having an STD. I would have like a discharge. There was one point where I said, well, that can't be because I haven't been with anybody <laughs> you know, in a month. So I went to the doctor and he says, and then they would test it and they would, well, there is no STD, but there is some type of infection. So they give me an antibiotic and it would clear it up. And this went on a couple of times. At one point, the doctor said, let's make an appointment with a urologist. So I went to see the urologist and that's when I did an exam and felt in the prostate and felt a little bump and said, it could be a cyst, it could be prostate cancer, but we need to take a biopsy. And that's when they did the biopsy. And the test came back positive again. <laughs> Where specifically in the city did you go for your care, and how did you make decisions about what to do? I was working at the body at the time. The diagnosis of the prostate cancer really rocked my world because I'd become accustomed to living with HIV and was doing well with it. Now it was another serious thing that I had to deal with. Part of the research I had done was that I knew that Harvard had a very good uh, HIV and cancer specialist doctor through the body, I had found out about that. So I went to see him and got some advice from him. Then when I came back to New York, I had met with my urologist. It's kind of strange. I was only 51 years old when I was diagnosed with the prostate cancer. And most men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer in their 70s or 80s, they're older and, you know, they do exactly whatever the doctor told them to do. Well, I wasn't that kind of patient anymore. <laughs> I had this doctor who was probably, he was, he was an older doctor and dealt mostly with straight men and prostate and elderly men. Well, I came in and I had already been to the specialist at Harvard and I knew what the treatments I should do and he didn't agree with some of them and I said, well, that's what I want to do. He would get a little upset with me, but I said, no, that's the way I want to approach the treatment. He was kind of miffed at certain points because I wouldn't do exactly what he wanted me to do and was used to his regular patients just kind of saying, okay, yes, doc, whatever you say. And I would question and challenge and say, you know, well, why do we need to do that? Actually, one of the doctors that he referred me to as a surgeon wanted to go the whole route of removing the prostate and then having external radiation and, and there were all kinds of uh, uh, hormone treatment and all of that. I said, no, I don't want to do that. From the research that I had done and also what I had found out at Harvard, that, that was unnecessary, especially with my case that was very early in the diagnosis. The cancer was not very far progressed. And prostate is a very slow-growing type of cancer. So, I mean, there's actually even the watch and wait 
type of approach where you don't do anything, you just monitor it. But having the HIV complicated matters, and it felt that that wouldn't be a good approach. You just don't know how your body's going to react to things. Also, living with cancer in your body is kind of a mental thing that you have to deal with. It would be something to just be hanging over you all the time. So I decided, okay, I want to get it taken care of. Let's do it. They implanted the radioactive seeds into the prostate. At first, there isn't really any problems from it. But as the radioactiveness of the seeds inflame the prostate and start killing the prostate, which also kills the cancer, uh, it inflames everything in that whole area. So after about a month is when the really the bad part of it in the pain and and all of the discomfort from that. Uh, get a little graphic here, but there were times where I actually had to lay down on my back in order to pee because I would go into a spasm because it was felt like I was peeing fire and barbed wire and gasoline all at the same time. And I would go into a spasm, and then you'd stop, and then it would make it worse. So I actually would literally have to lay down on my back and get a cup and try and relax enough that I could relieve myself. <laughs> that was a difficult time in having to deal with that. But, uh, you know, I had a very good support group at that time, too. I, I was involved with a prostate cancer support group for gay men in New York. That was a once-a-week meeting. So that was helpful. And there were a few others who had HIV, but most didn't. But again, it was a support group and it was helpful. How long did this treatment go on? How long were you in this sort of very uh, It was about a year. It would go in waves and sometimes it would be worse than others. It also depended on what you ate. I couldn't eat any foods with acid because that would inflame it more as you urinated. And alcohol was not a good thing. <laughs> there were things that I had learned not to do and not to eat or drink, like grapefruit juice, tomatoes. So you really had to watch your intake. And I would go like, oh, okay, I think it's getting better. Not quite as worse as it was last week. And then the next week it'd be just as bad. But it gradually, over time, it did lessen. First month was fine. And then starting after that month, probably the next six months were the worst period. And then it gradually got better over the next six months. So it was about a year that I had to deal with the pain. It sounded as if you were overwhelmed by having these two major diagnoses, yeah. these two major illnesses. How did you deal with that feeling? That was a hard one because I had come to grips with living with HIV. I was okay, you know, I, and then here you have cancer. Well, of course, that brought back Tom and him dying of cancer and all of the, the feelings that went with that and the, the, the terrified. Part of my problem was that I educated myself too fast on it and learned too much too quick. There isn't the support information out there for prostate cancer that there is for HIV. It's mostly older men who are involved with it, and most of the older men don't deal with it. It's their wives who deal with the information. It was a totally different demographic in, in, in the information that was out there than there is with HIV. Some of the information was old or it wasn't quite as accurate as it could have been. I really scared the hell out of myself one day. I remember just learning too much too quick and not being able to process it in a good enough manner. At that point, then, okay, well, i got to back off a little bit, just kind of let it go and deal with things as they come. And that's more or less how I adjusted to living with the dual diagnosis. Can you remember what happened specifically in that turning point where you said, I'm taking in too much of this information? Yeah, I remember reading something about 90% of prostate cancer comes back within 10 years, and it's medical castration and all this other stuff. It was just too much information overload, 
trying to figure out which treatment was the best. If that's the case, well, then maybe I should have the prostate removed. Where was the support group for gay men with prostate cancer? Uh, it was through St. Vincent's uh, Hospital. And that's actually where I had my uh, cancer treatment, the surgery done, the outpatient surgery, was at uh, St. Vincent's Cancer Center in Chelsea. Did your specialists ever think that you're having prostate cancer at a somewhat earlier age than people usually do might be linked to HIV at all? They haven't really ever found that that's the case. However, I was on testosterone because my testosterone levels were low and I was taking the cream. It's been shown that testosterone does, the best way to describe it is that it feeds prostate cancer because the prostate is where a lot of the testosterone is created. There is the possibility that because of the testosterone that I was on, it may have come on sooner than it would have if I hadn't been on testosterone. But there is just absolutely no way to put any link between the two. So, like I say, it was very early in the stage of, of growth. He could hardly tell it was there, uh, that there was a little cyst, a little bump. There wasn't any major growth or anything at the time. How's your health now, and how often do you go in for checkups? Um, I go in every three months. I just was there recently, and T-cells are again around 400, and viral load's undetectable. Most of my doctors say, well, yeah, we're just kind of monitoring, and we'll deal with things as they come up, but usually nothing comes up, so health is generally very good. Excellent. Cancer's still under control in remission. And yeah. What else do you do to keep healthy? Do you exercise, or do you eat yeah, healthy, um, or anything like that? I only live like a mile from the ocean, so I try to get out there as much as I can. Maybe, you know, at the minimum once a week, uh, I take walks in the sand, and that's good exercise. Do you swim at all? Yeah. I'm very careful about what I eat and my diet. There's a history of heart diseases in the family. So back back from my early 30s, I've eliminated salt and have been very conscious of being a heart-conscious diet. How's the heart condition shaping up. It's called cardiomyopathy, which is a slow thickening of the heart muscle, which could take 20 years to develop. And it was recently just found out because I had some lightheadedness and the heart wasn't beating quite right. It's nothing that is life-threatening currently. I mean, it could take 10, like I say, 10, 20 years before it develops into anything. Eventually, it would get into congestive heart failure because the heart couldn't pump enough. But at this point, I just have to try and keep my heart level below 120. There really isn't much else they can do. When were you diagnosed with that again? That was a year and a half ago. The history of my dad's side of the family is that no male had ever lived past 65. They had all died of heart attacks before 65. My dad's first heart attack was at 58, but he lived to be 85. <laughs> he was the one exception. Both of his brothers passed away early. His father was at 56 when he passed away. The family is very aware of heart conditions and heart situations, so I've always been also. So it was more of a preventive measure that you cut out salt when you were in your 30s? Yeah, exactly. Switching gears again, I know that you live in Fort Lauderdale now. How long have you lived down there? About two and a half years. Okay. And you moved there straight from New York? Yeah. I was working at Paz Magazine and had always been interested in baking and cooking, and so I decided to go back to school. I left Paz and... I uh, went to the Institute of Culinary Education in New York, uh, graduated in the pastry and culinary arts program. And I had wanted to open up uh, my own shop and had always planned on retiring in Fort Lauderdale and thought, why do I have to wait till I retire to move to Fort Lauderdale? Why don't I just move there and buy a shop? Which I did. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, that was about a year into that is when I was diagnosed with a heart condition, and it was not something that I could continue. Even though you don't think of a bakery as, as hard work, there's a lot of hard work. <laughs> we did like 300 bagels a day, and it was just something that I wasn't able to continue, so I had to sell the shop. And that's why I went back to work for Paz. It seems except for the baker you've stuck with working in HIV in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Do you ever just get tired of talking and thinking about HIV? I think that partly was the reason I went back to school and studied pastry. You do run into a little bit of a burnout, but I, I'm not anymore. I had a couple of years off, I guess. Maybe that was what I needed. It's such an important part of your life. It's important that you maintain information and your knowledge base about how to deal with the HIV and side effects. And as I'm aging, too, I mean, that's another aspect that's becoming something that people are paying more attention to now is that people with HIV who are aging and who are surviving, what does aging and HIV mean in the combination? What are you going to have to deal with? What are the effects of of aging with HIV? I think that's an important new direction that studies are kind of going into now because those of us that have survived and are HIV positive are getting older. (laughs) And as you get older, you have health problems anyway. But um, they're trying to learn more and more about the effects of getting older um, with a weakened immune system, how that's going to affect that process. You have not run into any HIV-related ageism. Uh, Just as you get older, you're not as desirable as, I don't mean, in all aspects of employment and society. I have found that people defer to me a little bit more now that I'm older, <laughs> but society is so geared towards youth. And I'm not old, but 60 was a big year this year for some reason. It bothered me. <laughs> Can you talk a little about that? When you're growing up, 60's old, <laughs> but it's not that old when you get here. <laughs> I, I still feel like I'm in my 40s or early 50s. I forget that I'm 60. I'm glad I'm here. Uh, I never thought I would be here. At the birthday, it was like, good, I'm celebrating, I'm 60, I made it to 60, I've lived these years because I didn't ever expect it to be this alive at this point, but then it's a double sword, <laughs> because, oh, I'm, I'm 60. Did you have a party? Did you celebrate your yeah. birthday? Oh. Yeah. Fort Lauderdale in Florida, which has sort of a reputation for being full of beautiful young people. Do you, uh-huh. Have you ever faced any ageism specifically down there? I've been very surprised with Fort Lauderdale. I thought it was a very youth culture, but it's not. Actually, a lot of older gay men have moved to Fort Lauderdale. It's actually quite enjoyable because there are a lot of people here who are my age. There's also the young crowd, but there's quite a large community here of 50 and older gay men and HIV men. And I didn't expect it. It was something that I hadn't thought about. But if you think about it, well, a lot of people come to Florida to retire. Did you know anyone in Fort Lauderdale when you moved? Yeah, I had some friends here. I had vacations here for years and had several friends that live here. Is that how you found the greater community that you've gotten involved with? How did you meet people? Through the shop, I met some people, and then, then through my friends and just socializing. I got involved, actually, though, an openly gay candidate who was running for mayor of Fort Lauderdale. He was a customer of mine at the shop that I got to know. I volunteered on his campaign and made pastries for the uh, committee meetings uh, that we had every Saturday morning. I got involved in that and and met some people through that. Nowadays, how do you decide to tell someone that you're HIV positive? It depends whether they need to know. I mean, I'm very open about it. I think everybody knows. I don't know if I've 
come out and told everybody, but I just kind of assume that people know at this point. In business situations, it depends on the situation. With my business, I did not make that a public knowledge because there's still some stigma associated with that as far as people coming in and that type of situation. My shop wasn't in Wilton Manors, which is the gay community. I mean, it was in Fort Lauderdale, and Fort Lauderdale is very open as far as the society goes. There really isn't a problem, but I just didn't feel it was necessary to have that out as public knowledge for the business. Who would you consider someone who needs to know? Someone that I'm dealing with on a regular basis, uh, more of a social situation. If it's a job, it depends on the type of job. Several jobs I've interviewed for, I've been open about it. Others, I haven't. It's almost on an individual basis. Thinking back over all the years that you've been living with HIV, what's the best response you think you've ever gotten from telling someone that you are HIV positive? I don't know if there's ever been a best response. (laughs) It's not something that generates a good positive discussion. I've always had good support most of the time, other than from my sister. But I think that it's just really a situation where people are more aware of it. But I still find that if they're not affected by it personally, they don't know much about it. What about a worst response or a least supportive response? Probably from my sister. Have you ever felt a lack from not having that support from your family, or do you feel as if you get it from other places and from chosen family? I feel like I get it from other places. I mean, it was my choice not to involve my parents with it. That was something that I had decided. I did expect more support from my sister, but again, you never know. But I've had very good support, and especially since I've worked within the HIV community, that's very liberating and very empowering, especially living with the disease and then also working in that arena. You find out a lot more than you would normally do. That's been part of my good support group. What do you think are sort of the biggest issues in HIV today that we need to address? To me, the most important message that we still need to get out is that safe sex works, and that unsafe sex doesn't work. It's not just a manageable disease. It's not like diabetes. There's a lot of things that you have to deal with. Just the physical cost of it, even if you have insurance. You've got co-pays, you've got your doctor's co-pays, you've got your pharmacy co-pays, which could add up to a couple hundred dollars a month. Financially, it's not something that's just an easy thing to deal with. Then physically and mentally, dealing with living with the disease and, and the side effects of the medications, and you know, you're susceptible to a lot more things as far as opportunistic infections. Or, so you have to be very careful about that. I think that people who just look at the fact that I can just take some medication and then I'll be able to live with it, well, that's not true you enter into a whole new world when you find out they're HIV positive. I mean, it just totally changes your life. That's the biggest thing to me that needs to be still worked on, and it's still something that's been going on for decades now. What do you think can be done to get the word out? What more do you think could be done? I think it's the constant effort that just can't be let up. When I found out that somebody was just recently infected, in my mind I'm going, why did you put yourself in that position? You should know about it. Why weren't you being careful? Why weren't you practicing safe sex? I just can't understand, with all the information that's out there, why people are still getting infected. But I guess that goes back to the same point, that there isn't enough information out there. People are still getting infected, even though everybody's aware of it. 
I just don't know that the message has gotten out strong enough, <laughs> and I don't know how else it could get out any stronger. When you're young, oh, you're not going to get anything. You're impervious. But yet, it does happen. I don't have an answer. I don't have a solution other than just constantly, constantly getting that message out there. Can you compare how you feel about having HIV now to your feelings when you first found out that you're HIV positive, and what are the differences there? So at the time, I just totally shut it out, didn't pay any attention to it whatsoever. Now I'm completely the opposite of that. I try to learn as much as I can and keep up to date, and any time I have an opportunity to learn something more about it, I do. And that's just part of being very proactive in your own health care. I would hope that that would become a model for people with other diseases and that they need to become more active and more participatory in their health decisions. Jumping off of that response, how do you think having HIV has changed you in other ways? How do you think mm -hmm. it's changed your life? Well, I don't know what I would have been like without it. I would never have been involved in the work that I've been doing. I know that. I would probably still be living in Ohio. <laughs> but I don't know. It's kind of like the butterfly effect. If you change something, then you don't know what your other reality would have been. It's really hard to speculate to what my life would have been like without it. Uh, it certainly hasn't been a blessing, but I certainly haven't been a martyr to it either. I think the part of living with it and dealing with it is what you become in your life. You deal with what you have, and you live with your circumstances, and that is what your reality is. And I don't know what I would have been like without it in my life. I would much rather not have it in my life, <laughs> but it's part of what I am. With that, we have to bring this interview to a close. Gary, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and share all of your experiences. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thanks for listening to This Positive Life. For more podcasts and other first-person stories, please visit us online at thebody.com. If you'd like to share your story, please email us at podcast at thebody.com.